do weird things sometimes. Uh, they do quirky things sometimes. Do you ever just have those moments when you think, what on earth are we doing? What, what is this about? And Okay, I shouldn't have gone there this week, but I, I was looking at church names. Oh my. <laughs> Let me just share a few. Accident Baptist Church. Safe to assume they're probably not Calvinist in their theology. Here's one for you. First Church of the Last Chance World on Fire Revival and Military Academy. What in the world? Now, here's, here's a great one. This is uh, Greater Second Baptist Church. Now, they reside in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Unfortunately, they're just right around the corner from Second Baptist Church, which obviously is not so great. There's Halfway Baptist Church. I'm guessing that might be a seeker-sensitive church. It's certainly a seeker-sensitive compared to Hell Hole Swamp Baptist Church. Are you serious? Uh, probably the name of the town. Even so, maybe we could consider... Uh, then there's faith-free Lutheran. So does that mean that the Lutherans are free? Or they're free of faith? Or faith makes one a free Lutheran? Or they're free to have any faith they want? I, how about this one? There's Little Hope Baptist Church. Which is better than No Hope United Methodist Church. These are real places. Here's a great one. How about the original Church of God number two? Oh my land. There's the Waterproof Baptist Church in Louisiana. <laughs> Harmony Baptist Church in East Texas. Now that's a name that doesn't sound so bad, but it's only half a mile away from Harmony Baptist Church number two. So much for Harmony. There's Lover's Lane Episcopal Church. I'm serious. I didn't make these up. Country Club Christian Church in Kansas City. There we go. Actually, I think we could probably find a lot of these in every city. Popular church growth model. Country Club. What do people think when they drive by and read these names? What do they think if they ever venture in, dare to venture in the door? Now, I've always been under the impression that the church exists to call attention to Jesus. I know that's probably a novel idea. To, to minimize calling attention to ourselves and to point to him, it was Jesus who said, you will be my witnesses in the world. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and uh, all around the world. Last Sunday was Pentecost Sunday. If you were here with us, we... We made note of that, the birthday of the church, celebration of that day about 2,000 years ago when the Spirit of God came upon His people in a new way, in great power, so that they could live their lives in the power of God. To be His witnesses every day, wherever 
they found themselves, whatever the circumstances, the Spirit of God completely reoriented their lives. Brent Thompson was with us last Sunday from the Midwest Conference. He challenged us, I thought so powerfully, from Ephesians 5, that that we're to be a people who, who find ourselves being filled with the Spirit of God. You remember if you were with us, Brent talked about the language there. It's, it's not something that we do. It's a, it's a passive statement where we simply want to be in a place where we, we open up the sail of our lives, if you will, to be, to be filled with the wind and the power of God's Spirit, to be a group of people that are continuously open to the Spirit's presence and empowerment of our lives. For what reason? To be witnesses for Jesus in the world. Brent used two words a lot while he was with us last Sunday, both in worship and then in the Veritas gathering that we had together afterwards. Two words that describe the goal of what every church should seek to become. Do you remember those two words? Anybody? Healthy and missional. You get an A. Healthy and missional. To the cute student up here in the front row. A healthy church, a healthy church is a church that is pursuing Christ. It is Christ's church. And so a healthy church, a healthy gathering of God's people are always pursuing Christ to know him better, to live for him more faithfully, to bring glory to him in everything that they do and everything that they say, to make knowing Christ and to make him known the highest priority so that a church's health is measured by its pursuit to become like Jesus Christ and then striving to become out of that more missional, which is defined as pursuing Christ's mission in the world. This is the original WWJD. You know, what would Jesus do? Well, that, that has all new meaning when we really understand that the church belongs to Jesus. We need to be a people who are constantly asking that question, what would the Lord Jesus have us do in this situation? The passion of Jesus when he was on earth was to live in obedient surrender to his Father. We see that again and again. Living in surrender to his Father told his followers, I don't speak anything, I don't do anything, except all that I have heard and received from the Father. So the passion of Jesus was to live in obedient surrender to the will of his Father. And when Jesus told his disciples to go and make disciples, make disciples of all people throughout the world, what did he have in mind? Well, he had in mind that they would go and present the truth of who Jesus was, so that people would surrender and live their lives to the glory of the Father. Two weeks ago, you might remember, we ended our Ephesians 1 study on resurrection living with these words. God appointed Christ to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. There are six words in that verse that have given birth to this next sermon series. They are these. The church 
which is his body. We are the body of Christ. And I believe that the key to becoming a healthy missional church lies in our understanding and our living out of these (coughs) words. The church, which is his body. Now, we're tempted to sort of think of that in, in kind of this mystical way. But it's not. We are God's people. We are his presence. We are the body of Christ. That means his voice and his hands and his feet and his compassion and his challenge and his encouragement. Whatever we see God in the flesh, that is Jesus, doing in the Gospels, that is our call as his people to be the presence of Christ in the world. I'm just going to lay my cards out on the table here. I think, personally, that the greatest undermining force that prevents any local church from becoming healthy and missional, pursuing Christ and pursuing Christ's mission, is the individualistic bent of the human heart. It flies against biblical teaching of the body of Christ. There's this interesting phenomenon in the scriptures. No one writes more emphatically about the body of Christ than the Apostle Paul. He clearly understands the importance of being a member of the body. And here's the thing. Anytime he's writing and theologizing about the body of Christ, who's he writing to? A local church a local church, a specific church that is in a specific place filled with real human beings who live their lives together. He does not write about the body of Christ in mysterious, spiritual, ethereal kinds of terms for the most part. He describes it as down to earth. He describes it as everyday, nitty-gritty, life of people who are living close enough to share life together. Sometimes folks talk about being a part of the body of Christ in kind of the same manner that that they talk about being part of the human race. You know? Um, I'm connected by virtue of my humanity to folks living on the other side of the world. I'm human, they're human. But in reality, my day-to-day life I'm not really impacted by how they live or what is going on in their world. And the same is probably true of them with my life. But but this is never the understanding of the body of Christ in Scripture. This is is not practical. If, If we're honest with the biblical emphasis upon the importance of the body of Christ, and specifically, race yourselves, specifically, the interdependence that we have upon one another. If we're, really, if we're really honest about that, then we have to see the teaching of Scripture in terms of a local gathering of people. Paul could have been writing one of his letters to Applewood Community Church. All that he had to say about the body of Christ to those early churches 
it applies now. And here's where we come face to face with that, that individualistic bent of the human heart that I referred to just a moment ago. Let's be honest. Or maybe I should be honest. Maybe you'll join me. <laughs> I really don't like the idea of being incomplete and needing others. I mean, it's nice in theory. And, 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 it, and it sounds good. But the truth is, I, I, I like to think of myself as having it all together. I'm, I'm, I'm complete. I mean, what am I lacking? Well, in terms of my salvation, in terms of the thoroughness, the completeness of Christ's atoning work on the cross, I am complete. But in terms of the living out of my faith as a follower of Jesus, Scripture says very clearly that I'm incomplete. And the bad news is, so are you. And we really need one another. But we don't like that idea. I think there is just something in our hearts that longs to be everything. But we're not. I'd rather talk about needing others in terms of sort of this large universal gathering of believers. Expressions like, oh, we really need one another. But I don't live like it. The body of Christ is such a beautiful thing and an important reality. But again, do I really live like I believe that? I can really do anything effectively on a daily basis. I can't. I can't do anything, excuse me, that's, that's really effective on a daily basis in terms of face-to-face interaction with, with those who are far away. Sort of that, that, that sense of the universal gathering of God's people, that, that large body of Christ, the universal church. What can I do on a daily basis? It doesn't seem that I can do much that's very practical, and so if I talk about the body of Christ in that way, I'm kind of off the hook, really. I can talk about it, but I don't really have to change my life that significantly. If I talk about you, on the other hand, as the body of Christ, it raises the stakes. If I talk about how I need you as the body of Christ, if I talk about how beautiful you are as the body of Christ, suddenly I'm no longer off the hook because I know you and you know me. And my life begins or should begin to reflect my understanding of what that means. We are called to live life together as the body of Christ. The exhortations in Scripture are directed to real people who are living, as I said earlier, near enough to one another to be deeply, not casually, deeply involved in one another's lives. Isn't that a bummer? I mean, that's just the expectation. Chuck Colson wrote a classic book, The Body, years ago. I just love the book. He says this, he says, Many Christians have been infected with the most virulent virus of modern American life. It's what sociologist Robert Bella calls radical individualism. 
They concentrate on personal obedience to Christ as if all that matters is Jesus and me. But in doing so, they miss the point altogether. For Christianity is not a solitary belief system. Any genuine resurgence of Christianity, as history demonstrates, depends on a reawakening and renewal of that which is the essence of the faith. That is the people of God, the new society, the body of Christ, which is made manifest in the world. That is what Scripture refers to as the church. So my friends, this is where we're going to head together for the next few weeks in in talking about the importance of being the body of Christ if we're going to consider seriously Brent's challenge to us, this, this journey and this adventure of becoming a healthy and missional church, I think it starts with our understanding of what it means for us, for you and for me, to be living our lives together as the body of Christ that we call Applewood Community Church. We're going to use Romans chapter 12. We're going to use 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm, I'm convinced that this is where the Lord wants us to go. I'm convinced that these are the right texts. What I'm not convinced of is how long we're going to do it. So just come along for the journey. Come along for the journey. In the time that we spent, some of you were with us last week, uh, following worship with Brent in the, uh, the Veritas gathering, he identified for us four different kinds of churches. Now, Some of you have seen the 10 healthy missional markers. They were scattered around on the chairs. Uh, I sent you emails about them. Some of you have gotten them in the past. Those are markers that are used to evaluate, to assess the, the, the life and the health of a congregation. And Brent identified for us four different kinds or categories of churches uh, that that we have observed at least denominationally around the United States. The, uh, the ideal, sort of on the scale from health to less than healthy, would be the, the healthy missional church. They would be the church that as you look at those 10 missional markers, you see those evidenced in the life of the church just all the time. 80 to 100% of the time is the figure that Brent gave us. Churches that are healthy and missional show evidence of all ten of those often in the life of their church. It's, it's in what they do. It's in what they say. It's just woven into the fabric. The next category of church, coming this way a bit, is the stable church. And the stable church shows evidence of those ten healthy missional markers 50 to 79% of the time the life of the congregation. They surface, they show up, they're talked about, they're expressed. Continuing on over to the less healthy side of the spectrum would be the critical moment church. And you can guess by the name that they're at a critical place in the life of the church. Some things probably need to be revamped and revisited and, and, and re, you know, changed, rethought. The critical moment church shows... The 10 healthy missional markers, 15 to 49% of the time in the life of the congregation. Sliding on over to the last category on the side of unhealthy would be the at-risk church. That church 
gives evidence of those ten healthy missional markers throughout its life and the fabric of, of who it is and what it does and what it says, only 0 to 14% of the time. And what Brent told us was that there is always hope with Christ. But in the spectrum of church life and health, one of the things that we need to remember is that sometimes life comes out of death when a church is resurrected after it has decided to to close its doors. Well, we did some conversation and some learning around those healthy missional markers and the lives of those, those, the, the categories of those churches. And then Brent asked us to, those of us who were present, to, to make an honest assessment of where we think Applewood Community Church is. And then he asked us to place an X on the diagram, a flip chart of the four different churches. Put an X where you think Applewood Community Church is. Most of us present placed Applewood near or at a stable church. Some put us between stable and, and healthy, moving towards healthy. Some thinking, well, maybe we've, we've been healthier, maybe we're moving a little bit back towards stable. One person put us between stable and critical moment. For the most part, the consensus of the folks there was that, that Applewood is a stable church. Here's the good news. If those present were representative of the rest of you who call Applewood Community Church your home, then we are perceiving ourselves to be a fairly healthy church. We are stable. Here's the bad news. The Lord Jesus Christ, the head of His church, which is His body in the world, didn't call us to be stable. He didn't call any church to be stable. He calls His church to be filled to overflowing with the presence and the power of the Spirit of God, calling attention not to themselves and oh how wonderful they are, but to the world and how wonderful their Savior is. That is the goal, should be the goal, of every church. Think of it in terms of of vital signs in our bodies. Obviously, stable is good compared to critical moment or at risk. (laughs) But let's be honest, if you've got the choice of having your old ticker beat along at a stable pace versus a healthy, strong, and rigorous pace, which one are you choosing? Oh, I'm going to go stable. I want to die sooner. Come on. Or I want to just live my life comfortably. No, Jesus doesn't call us to be a stable church. He calls us to be a healthy, missional church, pursuing Christ in everything that we do, putting Him high as the head of the church, taking our lead from Him, being His hands, His feet, His presence in the world. And so I think it's a starting point for us in understanding how to become a healthy missional body that we begin by understanding what it means to be a body, his body, period. Starting point. There really are no better texts, I I think, than, than Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 
to uh, teach us what it means to be the body of Christ. So, in these next weeks together, we're going to look for the, the overarching principles that shape body life that should inform our understanding and, and hopefully impact our, our living out together what God has called us to be in Christ and for Christ. And this morning we're going to read just a couple of verses from Romans 12. My suspicion is, is that for a lot of us, particularly if you've been around the church for a while, some of us have grown up in the church, you'll know Romans 12, 1 and 2. You've, you've heard these. Some of you might have them memorized. But what might be slightly less familiar to you is the verses that come at the end of Romans chapter 11 that linguistically are tied to those first two verses in chapter 12. And I want us to, uh, to go from this worship service this morning with, with those words ringing in our ears. So let's stand. And let's read together. We're going to begin at the end of Romans, chapter 11. And then we'll read into those, what are probably two familiar verses in Romans 12. So Paul has been talking about the wonder of salvation for 11 chapters. What God has done. Uh, It is safe to say that he is wowed at this point. And these words are exploding off of his pen. Let's read them. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. Here is a question for your neighbor. Are you ready? It's hard. What does a living sacrifice look like? Therefore, my brothers and sisters, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice that plural bodies, singular sacrifice. What does that living sacrifice look like? See what your neighbor thinks. Okay, we ready? Man, if you were on topic, that was some energy. (laughs) Okay, what did you hear? What's your neighbor think? What does a living sacrifice look like? 
Oh, you weren't talking about it, were you? (laughs) I should have known. All right, let's have the benediction and go home. (laughs) That was wonderful. Yes, it is self-death. And yet it's living. Giving up something of personal value. Okay, we could tie that to Lee and say, I certainly value myself. So I give up myself for the duration of my life. Ooh, it's everything. Ooh, yes, yes. Yeah, the problem with the living sacrifices is they crawl off the altar, right? What else? What else? What else did you hear? Mm-hmm. I suppose we could. Yep, it's potential. Would you agree, Nat? It could lead to that. Or it could be that. So we've got to choose the significant sacrifice. What else? Anyone else? So how do we put those two things together? How does living and sacrifice go together? That is such a bummer, isn't it? I just want to do it once and be done with it. But no, it is. It is a call to a present, continual, on into the future action. Yes, and it seems to me, if I can jump off of what you've said there, that it, it's consistent with, with the language. It demonstrates an understanding of what God has done for us. That's why I think Paul ends chapter 11 with just this this explosion of doxology. Praise be to God. Look at what he has done. If you remember where Romans starts in chapter 1, it's bleak. You know? Wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all humanity. It's just not a happy thing. And and then he he proceeds to, to walk through Romans demonstrating how God has made salvation available through his son, how the sacrifices of the Old Testament were not sufficient to save anyone, that, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, as it, it, it counted, as righteousness. And so by the time Paul, writing out of his Jewish sacrificial background, gets to the end of, or near the end of chapter 11, realizing that this is just an amazing outrageously lavish plan of God for salvation to a people who deserved nothing other than condemnation because of their rejection of God as their creator, their rebellious spirit that insists on living life for themselves. By the time Paul gets there, I think those words, he just, he's just overcome and, and, and spells out those amazing things. Look at what God has done for us. To Him be the glory forever. Therefore, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, people of God, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Paul emphasizes in that doxology that God has done what no one else could do and no one has forced God to do it. He did not owe anyone anything. No one counseled God and said, you know, you could save face if you did this for humanity. God was not indebted to anyone. He specifically lays those out. He did this amazing plan of salvation because that is who God is is in his book called the shattered lantern ronald roseheiser writes this following he says to live in fear of god 
means that we live before God and the rest of reality in such a way that there is never contempt within us. I think sometimes we, we misunderstand the idea of fear of God. You know, we, we vacillate between the extremes of, of fearing God as in fear and trembling that I'm going to be condemned, uh, which in Christ Jesus, Paul has clearly said, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Or we fly over here to the other side of the spectrum and, and, and it's all casual with God, you know, my, my big buddy in the sky and yada, 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 and I'm going to throw up. That is, don't go there. The fear of God that the scripture talks about for believers is this overwhelming sense of awe at who God is. And that yes, he could snuff me in a moment. And yet I know that because of who I am in Christ, my soul is secured as well with my soul. It is this reverent awe. And so, Rollheiser says, to live in fear of God means that we live before God and the rest of reality in such a way that there is never contempt within us. We never, we never go down that path of, well, this is no big deal what God has done. He says, we take nothing for granted. We take everything as a gift. We have respect. We are always poised for surprise before the mystery of God, others, and ourselves. All boredom and contempt is an infallible sign that we have fallen out of a healthy fear of God. I think that's what Paul's driving at when he says, in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy. Look at what God has done for you. With that being the lens that you look at life with, the wonder and the beauty and the power of God to secure your salvation, That is what you make decisions out of. That is how you view yourself. That is how you think. That is how you act toward others. In view of God's mercy, it is truly a lens through which we are to see life. And when we do that, it means that we will offer our bodies, plural, as a singular sacrifice. That's so fascinating. Because Paul tracks on down in the next few verses, and and we'll see that in in weeks to come, right into body life. So amazing. Right into body life. Okay, here is your spiritual act of worship. You offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And those words, holy and pleasing to God, you really don't, don't hear those as something that you have to muster up and figure out. Paul's not suggesting that somehow we need to figure out how to make this this sacrifice of myself and ourselves as as holy and pleasing. Got to get it to that point before we can actually offer it. No, what Paul is saying here is that it is the recognition of God's mercy and our response of offering ourselves to Him that is indeed holy and pleasing to Him. When we recognize God's mercy and we respond by saying, I am not my own. I am yours. I am bought with a price. Do whatever it is you want to do with me. And imagine all of us together saying that. That becomes the living sacrifice 
that is holy and pleasing to God. Does that make sense? All right. So, you got to buckle your seatbelts because we are going on a wild ride together. Um, praise team, come on up and I'll, I'll just close with a couple comments as you're coming. Here's how it is going to look in one obvious word. Sacrifice. That's it. Life lived together as a healthy missional church is a life where the individuals are living sacrifices. Everything flows out of that. So here's your assignment for this week, if you're willing. Continue to read on through Romans chapter 12, particularly go down through, oh, about verse, verse 21, the whole chapter. Won't take you long at all. See how Paul ties life together as the body of Christ with these words about being living sacrifices. Living sacrifices has to do, or living sacrifice has to do, first of all, I think, with our life together. We start by surrendering self, and then we move to joining with others who have done the same, and suddenly we find ourselves in this living, vital, power-filled organism that is called a healthy, missional church. So this is where we're going to go. Paul Turnier wrote this at one point in his life. He said, Christianity is not one ideology over against other ideologies. Listen closely. He said, it is a life that is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. Its victories are nothing but victories over itself, not over others. It propagates itself through humility and self-examination, not through triumphs. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be people who present our bodies as a living (laughs) sacrifice for God's glory and for God's praise. So read on into Romans 12, tighten your seatbelt, and we'll journey forward next week together.